Well, good day, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of our Discipleship Reframe podcast. Today, we're starting in session eight, um, but a little bit of review. We've taken quite a bit of time to walk through some initial stages of kind of challenging our perceptions and the ways we've done discipleship, but then uh, walking through specifically some stages of growth to identify for the disciple. Uh, specific, we talked about um, um, an infant stage a child stage, a young adult, and then a parent, just um, how a disciple might grow. There are areas that we want to look at in head, heart, and habits in each of those stages as a disciple grows. And then what are those outcomes that we want to see as we're leaning into that discipleship growth? It sounds extremely overwhelming, and it was very quick as I uh, talked about it there. So I encourage um, everyone to go back and listen to some of our previous podcasts to hear about these stages, the head, heart, and habits, the outcomes, and to um, de-overwhelm yourself and de-stress yourself and to, to really see what, what we're talking about here and to dive in. Tonight's going to really be, or tonight, today's going to really be about moving into a shift towards the how and talking a lot about the what and really trying to settle ourselves in, in what discipleship is, what it looks like, uh, what are some outcomes for it. We get so quick to the how um, that we get lost in the what and we don't have any idea about the what. And so that's what we've taken. But today is going to move into the how and as always, I'm here with John. And John, uh, how are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah. Great to be with you, Brandon. Let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. So as we move into the how, John, tell everybody today a little bit about what we're talking about and uh, and what it means for us to move from where we've been to where we're going. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. Well, the title for our our session is a structure for strategies. We've been using the language, Brandon, frame, building a framework. And so in that's Within the framework as a whole, uh, of course, there is structure, right? And I'm going to uh, suggest a metaphor today uh, for thinking about how, when you when you have all the different initiatives and activities of your church, to put them in two buckets, you could say, or we're going to say a two-lane highway. And the idea here of a highway, of course, is that you're on a journey. We've talked about the lifelong journey of discipleship, and so you got this highway. And of course, there's lots of different ways you can get on board with Jesus in the discipleship journey. You can you know, be converted uh, through a friend or a rally uh, or a camp, or you can uh, have a midlife crisis and say, I've got, there's got to be more. You could uh, come back to the church after straying for a long time, et cetera, et cetera. There's something that moves us to say, I want to start the journey. I want to get onto the highway. And what we're really meaning here, you know, Brandon, is not so much that the highway is the church, as, as much as we're saying that the highway is the discipleship journey, of course, which the church is the part. What we're really saying yes to in the beginning here is, Jesus, I want to follow you, and I have to do that with other people on this highway. In my car, in their car, we're traveling together in community. So anyway, the, the idea here is that we're going to introduce two lanes, and uh, that one lane is the program lane, which that is what we're going to say is the, the place where we do things with others in organized settings of usually, you know, groups of half a dozen or more. And then we have what we call the personal lane, which is uh, things that we do in much more intimate settings with one or two or three others. And you think about an athlete, Brandon. I mean, every good athlete needs to be at team meetings, team practices, program lane, right? 
but then they need to do something on their own. They need to work out, they need to eat well, they need to have one-on-one -on -one instruction from time to time. And so those blend together in any good team. So it is with discipleship. Yeah, thanks, John. And so, I mean, you've, um, I wanna take a little bit and dive into that a little bit more, especially about the program and you define them um, there in a sense of, of, of size um, and kind of group orientation, but I'm, I'm knowing well uh, how you and I work, there's much more that goes into the, uh, the definition and the depth of the program lane. So can you take just a, a bit of time and, and maybe spell out for us a little bit more about what you mean about the program? It's a little bit more than just size, right? Sure, no, I've, and, we'll, and we can jump into the size more. I'm just using that as, right, as a, as a beginning uh, differentiation between the two. So uh, today, by the way, we are just primarily going to focus on the program lane. And there is, you know, for those who are involved in the discipleship refrain, there is a, a handout on this and a visual, and you don't have to have it to follow along. But I, but I will say that the two-lane highway is only, we're only doing one lane today, the program lane. And the next session, we'll really jump into the personal lane. So we're zooming in here. So the program lane is if you've been a part of a church, it's usually we're pretty familiar with this. These are the, the things that the staff and the teams organize, have available for people. This is when we talked about consumer Christianity. We're looking for programs, right? We're looking to have our needs met by things that they anticipate would appeal to us, would draw us in. And, uh, and so what we want to we wanna highlight here is what I would say is, you know, naturally true when you think of social structures, for example, and I, my favorite example, uh, even though I'm not a, I don't know everything about football, I've watched enough and know enough to know that a good team of a size of a professional football team has multiple size activities, group structure, you know, sizes that are working together and have identified that some things just work really well in certain settings. So for example, you know, when the coach wants to inspire the team, it would take a very long time to do it one person at a time. He can inspire somebody individually, but when he gathers and gives a talk before the game or at halftime, that's effective, right? That inspiration, that large setting. Uh, and churches do that. Churches have settings like that, like usually Sunday morning, where it's ideal to, through the worship and the song and the preaching, to move people to want to respond to Jesus. But then it, to go back to the football illustration, there's the mid-sized group. It's breaking the, the whole team into the offense and the defense, you know, getting instruction. Here's the key word here, to learn what do I do, you know, when there's a running player, a passing player? How, what are the, the defenses and the, and, and the strategies that we're going to have? There's interaction, a chance to ask questions and to build a kind of a unity around a group that's smaller than the entire team. And then we have what uh, smaller groups. And again, um, you have probably all the linebackers probably have to get together in a more intimate way to know how are we going to work together as a unit within the defense or the running backs or the wide receivers. And so they get special, they get a different kind of a coaching and training. Same thing in the churches, right? That when we gather as a mid-sized group, it's a great place for instruction breaking people up into small groups, having a chance to ask questions uh, in a way you can on a Sunday morning. And then that small group where you get to know your team, so to speak, these are my people and we're doing something within the larger um, and we're connecting and integrating what we are learning. So that's 
Well, I don't know if that resonates with you. You're a coach, Brandon, um, but and you're part of a church. But that's what we want to highlight is that programs at its beginning recognize a value to thinking through opportunities and activities in all three of those size, large, midsize, and small. Yeah, no, that that does resonate, John. And, and I mean, I think as you look at multiple different team sports and that aspects, it really, you know, it draws out some um, some very particulars. If the linebackers only practiced as the linebackers, then on Sunday joined the rest of the team, they'd have no idea what everybody else is doing, where they're going and what, you know, they know their plays, but they don't know how to interact with the, with the linemen and the defensive ends and the wide receivers. And if they didn't have the personal time and were only practicing in a large group, um, how, how little effort or how much little time we would be able to put into them as a coach, um, in those settings, how quickly we, we might need to move through that. Yet we, um, we tend, and I think we might be able to see this as we see through this lens with the churches that we focus more in those bigger areas and some of the other areas are let, we, we don't have position specific um, places to go. Well, you could, to take the analogy, just you could play with this for quite a while, but you know, the coach that only rouses up the team uh, just before the game, but doesn't practice. They don't know their plays. <laughs> they don't trust their fellow, you know, linebackers. It's going to be a disaster on the field, no matter how inspirational you are. And so uh, it's not uncommon for a pastor who feels frustration and of putting all the effort on the inspiration, you know, on that Sunday morning, but then finding the way people play the game of life is not what they would at hope. And so the real question is, is how as a coach of a large you know, professional football team is integrating these three settings um, in, a, in, a, in a holistic way, how do we do that as pastors? I don't have any easy answers, but at, at least Christianity is as important, right? As football. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. how can we learn? That's kind of, and, and here's the thing is, is we are, we're not centered in the, you know, the, the NFL, we're centered in Jesus Christ. Think, let's just think out loud a little bit. Like, where do you, like, give me an example. Let's think out loud about Jesus in large group settings. Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus preaching, you know, to the multitudes. Jesus healing, you know, with the crowd pressing in around the house, you know, the paralytic, right? Um, Sermon on the Mount, how about uh, mid-size? That's a fun one. Um, his dinner settings, his intimate dinner settings. Yeah, so his disciples plus guests coming, right? Yeah. Um, we also have this number called the 70 that Luke talks about that seems to be, that, that could have been very, what you're saying, could have been that dinner crowd at times, that people that were crowding in beyond the 12, hey, we want time with this guy too, regularly. There was this group of 70 that that experienced a lot of what the 12 did. and. And that was a place it seems like Jesus did a lot of his parables and instruction. And then, of course, there's the small setting, the 12. Uh, walking with them, calling them, empowering them, sending them out, doing things with them that he didn't do with everybody else. And so try to imagine Jesus's ministry without one of those aspects. Brandon. Right. Right. Well, you'd see that it would fall very short of the impact that it had on multiple different levels. Oh, totally. In fact, that's kind of one of the great news. We're starting the Lent season. Everybody was inspired on Palm Sunday, but all of those people hadn't had no deep roots. And days later, they were saying crucify him. The multitudes were or fickle. Um, if they didn't have the other settings, they were like the football team that had inspiration, but no practice. And so 
this really has, for me, been that uh, important part of my journey to look at the how of Jesus um, in terms of, you know, what he did to make disciples. Right. Right. So, yeah, John, this is resonating with me, but, you know, I know who's listening and I'm even stuck in, in, in very much in, rooted in this myself, um, you know, and as a pastor, as a pastor working on discipleship. So where do we go from here? The size, uh, I'm resonating with you on the size, but how do I consider or reconsider the, the choices for my strategy? What, are, what, what do I need? What are the implications of what we've been discussing? There are more boxes than just simply the size you know, on this program lane. Um, but what is, help me start drawing some connections here to, to what I need to start doing. That's great. And we're going to do this together, Brandon. Let me say a couple things up front. Uh, well, first of all, that um, I'm not a seasoned pastor. I've been a part of a church for over 30 years. I've been the adult discipleship pastor for a couple of years. Um, and I'm sure in, in the midst of this COVID reality, we're all wondering, where do we go from here? So I don't want to come across as more than a learner. But there, here's a couple of things as, as I've been traveling and talking to pastors and reading over the years. One thing that's been helpful for me, and this metaphor is a, is a good one here, is if you think about the journey of discipleship on a highway, you, you have to be in a vehicle. <laughs> a vehicle that's taking you there. And so one of, you know, the aspects of the vehicle we're saying is that there's, there's programs. There are things that are planned and initiated in larger settings. Jesus did it. They're essential. They're a, they're a part of it. But I like to think about, uh, instead of saying we already have our programs, how can we make them work? Or we already have our programs, so we must be doing okay, right? <laughs> Just because you have a vehicle doesn't mean that it's full of the right stuff. Yeah. Just because you have a vehicle doesn't mean it's going in the right direction. And so what we're wanting to do is to say, how can our programs, how can we look at them and say, in light of the outcome, um, where, where does this program fit? And, and we're going to explore here this idea of a continuity and discontinuity in the sense of, it may be that some of the things that we're doing are just exactly aligned with our outcomes. They're perfect. And maybe we just need to add a couple of things to round them out, like the football team analogy. But it may be that we need to be willing to say, you know what, we need to alter this. This really isn't working that well, given all the effort. Or, and there may be some things we need to let go. This is a church opinion is the church like a story has continuity discontinuity and if we can embrace that and not mix up the means with the ends not assume that our programs are the results or the outcomes but they are to serve them then i think we're in a good place yeah uh i mean to, to go back to the football analogy if the goal is to win games then we need to do specific things to train the athletes to do so. If the goal is simply to have practice, then I can have two practices a week and call it good for an hour and I've achieved my goal. Um, but if I want to win, I got to do a little bit more than that in order. Well, to if get you want to keep your job, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, there's no one that's going to come out and say, listen, you know, Pete Carroll for the Seahawks, we had four practices that week, but if they're losing every game, he's not going to keep his, so his job. And I think that's a great picture and a great connection there. So here's the exercise we want to do. We want to, we're going to do it this week in the program lane, next week in the personal lane. So we're going to stay in our lane. And what I mean by that is 
we might be tempted as we brainstorm strategies here around a particular outcome to think about like one-on-one -on -one settings versus we're going to hold off on those until next week. Here's what we want to do. We um, uh, last week in the in the lesson uh, number seven, we took the time to take uh, a closer look at head, heart, and hands outcomes in the in four different stages of the um, you know the process of becoming and growing as a disciple. And uh, and this and this week, what we want to do is with those outcomes in mind, we're going to just revisit that, and we're going to add the question of how could our programs and maybe some different settings work together to help us get the vehicle, right? To get to that outcome. And so Brandon, uh, we're gonna come and uh, back to you here. You took the lead on this last, uh, in our last session. And so let's go back to the, um, the goal of people in our community being um, well-versed in solitude, finding meaning and connection with God in solitude. And so you took some time last time to, uh, uh, to parse out some, some outcomes in all four of those stages. Let's, let's zoom in on just the infant stage with our limited time here. Remind us of what some of your outcomes were, uh, head, heart, and hands in the area of solitude, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, so the for the infant, as we were looking at, this is very obviously the very beginning stage of solitude. And it could be anybody from a, um, any actual age, but this is really your maturity level in Christ. And and so as an infant getting into uh, solitude, the three things we kind of picked up on was um, for an infant, we want them to understand that solitude is normal um, in our particular culture here. In America, solitude is not normal. Um, there's so much going on. I mean, solitude is not having your phone in your hand being alone. Um, solitude is literally allowing yourself to be alone with God. Um, and so to teach people, um, infants, that this is normal um, and that solitude is normal. That is an idea. The next level is being okay with being alone. Mm. Um, and so there's th um, that is very much a, a mental issue that I think a lot of people get scared about being alone. It's there's a separate nature there. There's a lot of wounding that goes into that as well, or, or multiple other things. Our culture just again yeah. alone is is weird um, uh, apparently. And so getting people to understand that being 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 okay with being alone. Um, <clears throat> and then the last one is that in solitude, we I would I want to help the infant know that they can experience God in the times of solitude. Again, it's not just about being alone. Um, it's about being able to experience God in those times of, of solitude, which is very, in that place is very different than other places that you can experience God. And so to begin to cultivate um, the idea of experiencing God in those places. So you, you, and so that was a head and a heart and a hands, right? I mean, so the, the ability to know that it's okay you know, that was almost like you were talking about the heart issue to get over fear, to get over a sense of dread, you know, that I would, I, I could be alone, but then you they needed to understand something. You said that on the very front side. So that, I love that. So there's three different aspects working together. Um, so if that would be your hope for brand new believers coming into your church um, or people who had been there a long time and were still infant, how would you use the worship service? We'll start there because that's where I think our church culture tends to start is the priority of the worship service. What would you do in a worship service that could uh, you know, help you with those outcomes? 
Yeah, it was a that was a fascinating thing to think through a little bit earlier as we discussed this, John. And two, I got excited, but then also a little depressed <laughs> as I started thinking through. There's lots of things to do, but I got trapped um, in feeling like it wasn't enough. And we'll get into that. But there's um, teaching about it from the pulpit is is a really great way of of talking about solitude, of instructing about solitude, of inspiring people towards. Um, solitude and talking about the, the, the works of Jesus using um, a worship service to share testimonies of those who experience mm-hmm. solitude or yeah. practice solitude regularly, um, using the worship time itself to, uh, to just have silence, um, which in and of itself is, um, is a means towards this kind of idea of solitude and a step in that direction. And, yeah, it's kind of like, I think of like training wheels. You know, it's like giving them, rather than waiting them to do it completely alone, you give them a solitude within the community. Right, right. Um, and so those were, those were some ways that I, I, um, that I felt that we could, you know, really begin to start scratching the surface of solitude um, sure. using the worship service. So you said something about angst, something that as you got into it, you got both excited, but then you saw maybe some limits. Say a little more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I just want to revisit that what I said about the goals, you know, solitude is normal, being okay with being alone and experiencing God in, <clears throat> in their times of solitude. Uh, I mentioned, and I mentioned three things that I could do at a worship service from the pulpit, using prayer time, using worship, which is great. But in my opinion, those don't, I, I can't, those don't help me get to knowing whether somebody's okay um, being alone or whether they get that solitude is normal um, or whether they're experiencing God in this time. I just am providing a space where they're quiet <laughs> and I'm providing knowledge that I'm hoping is getting into their head um, and into their heart a little bit, but that's, that's it. That's, that's as far as it goes. And I just, uh, well, so, okay, so like the so like the coach, right? That gave a real inspiring speech, and then deep down knows there needs to be more. Right? <laughs> One, two, three, break, and then he needs to move them out into something complimentary. Say, well, how would you use a smaller, mid-sized setting, you know, to complement what you could do in a worship service to help you, you know, head to help your people head towards those outcomes. Yeah. I mean, like, so if it's something that I would be preaching from the pulpit, I love what we're doing at, at, at our church right now of, of preaching on the kingdom of God, but we're only doing short, you know, spending half the time in sermons and then half the time is, is table discussion. So the ability for people to now share and amongst a group and ask questions about solitude, it's not just this information coming at me, but now I get to say, I didn't understand that. <laughs> um, and, and, getting to ask their questions. I've tried it and it's been hard. Here are the barriers and hearing other people um, share about that. So using smaller, smaller settings to allow for conversation, to allow for questions to come out for allow for specific teaching that can go in um, a little bit deeper using, again, you can use those smaller settings for the experience of silence uh, moving towards that um, moving towards that idea of solitude again, but within community, but now it's a little smaller. I mean, even let's just go into all five of us go into five different rooms in the church and shut the door yeah. for 10 minutes and then come back out again, you know, um, our, <laughs> and, like, you know, we used to do that in our college ministry. It was a tradition that every Saturday morning we would start with a devotional and then we would send people out for a half an hour. And then we would come back together. So we kind of teed up the ball, so to speak, you know, gave them something to think about and they could return to. And, uh, 
but they actually had, but they knew they were doing it somehow with their friends, even though they were alone, they, they were doing a community activity. And so that became kind of a chance to practice exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Now I like that. If, if you can, I'm just picturing your church, you know, around round tables and uh, you know, if you strategically had small group leaders or people in the church that were not infants, right. That were in that young adult parent stage, they're listening. Right. And so-and-so leads out with, I'm scared to death. You know, my father, I was abused when I was younger. My father was distant. It doesn't, you know, and someone's paying attention. Let's have coffee, you know, and we're moving into the personal lane, <laughs> but, but, you know, but, but there's an awareness now. The pastor doesn't have to be aware of everybody's blocks right now. You're distributing the leadership as a coach, um, but the small group discussion is giving a chance for that to surface. Yeah. And it, it really does multiply the, the discipleship. As you said, I have to be helping those small group leaders move from wherever they are <clears throat> on the journey up as they're right. helping the people in the groups move on their way up. And, um, and again, you, you, you begin to see the, the multiplication and the, the ability of people teaching down. I'm guessing, you know, you could refer to your experience in cheer, but um, when I hear, I, I'm a, you know, peel you, you know, graduate I hear people talk about guns we're on the football team you get a sense that when a team is healthy that the older athletes are an extension of the coaching to the younger they're there then now there's a culture where you're just looking to help other people succeed because eventually they're going to take your place on the team right and so that's you know this may sound overwhelming at first but when you think about building a culture over years this actually is the key ultimately to a culture of discipleship is that everybody is involved in nurturing and reaching out and discipling others. It was, it was exactly the way that I ran my, my cheer gym. The, it eventually got to a point that my seniors were doing the bulk of the foundational coaching and I would come in and do the little tweaks and the bigger, the bigger skills that needed to really make sure that we were tight on that program lane. But other than that, they took on the brunt of the work of, of the foundational aspects of, of things. Hmm. So this is where some of what we talked about earlier, that, the, that, the, that once you decide that the pastor's role as a coach, it changes the capacity to re-envision how you could develop, you know, develop the kind of culture that we're talking about, the kind of outcomes we're moving towards. So Brandon, in this process, you know, you've been in this solitude for a number of weeks with your, you know, Pastor John and, and now taking it to this next level. What's standing out to you, you know, as, um, as kind of the takeaways, not so much like how you would do solitude, but how this is n nurturing your, your understanding of how we approach the program lane, so to speak, at the part of how that fits into our goals of, of transformation. Yeah, it's... Um what what has really dawned on me with that is <clears throat> it seems like we we seem to want to take the existing structure or the different programs that we're doing you mentioned some of these things a little bit earlier yeah. and then we try to make discipleship happen within them but just to look at the three outcomes that i listed for solitude you quickly realize that what we what your average american even your average christian might call church you can't achieve those goals in, in what would be, what would be a, a designed as that. And looking at something as solitude, if that was my particular focus, there's a lot that's getting in my way currently that's functioning. And I would have to do something completely different in order to achieve those 
those goals. And I think it's just given heightened the reality that I need to start in that place, not, not in the car, you know, but where I'm going is going to help me dictate that I probably don't want a Ferrari. If I got to travel 3000 miles, um, I need something that's going to, you know, a van with a little bit of room and some gas mileage and can haul all my stuff and, and to get me there, you know, I mean, and, and the terrain that I'm going to be on and, um, and preparing for all of those different things, you know, and so, but I've got to start with the end in mind rather than the function of, of how I'm going to get, you know, yeah. a, a, of the vehicle that I'm using to get there. And that just became exceedingly clear. Um, and, doing and by starting with the outcomes, it forced you, right. It kind of forced you to shift your focus. And, and, you know, Thomas Aquinas has a, um, uh, a quote, you know, an idea that towards the end of his life, he, it's several things that were famous, but one of them was he, that he realized that, that all sin could be boiled down to confusing the means with the end. It's a really powerful comment to think that, if, you know, certainly we could say, well, yes, idolatry, you know, you make this too important or that too important, but there is a human tendency to always make the means into the end. And when we are called by the gospel to repent, it goes far beyond, you know, the conventional personal sin habits that may require institutions like the church to recognize where have we made the means into the end. And, uh, and so that's part of what we're walking away with here is that we've taken the time to really think deeply about the outcomes in some ways to realign, to, in some, to help us repent in some ways. But at the same time, I hope, Brandon, too, alongside what you shared, is that people will go, we're not saying don't have a worship service. Don't gather your people together and throw everything out. But we may need to tweak. We may need to let go. We may need to change. And in some cases, we may need to radically change uh, and to be willing. But having the end in mind and the, and the trust that Christ will lead us um, will help us to let go and move into that. Uh, so, folks, if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, you know, when you think about all that's at stake and all the different outcomes we would long for in the life of a disciple, all that, all how programs would work together. I hope we're all a little overwhelmed. I think of uh, uh, people that are in studying medicine or different fields that, uh, that take four to six years of intensive training before they're released. We are, as pastors and leaders of God's you know, chosen designed bride, we have something that's at least as important as medicine, at least as important as professional football. And yet we are not the ultimate coach. We are not ultimately in charge. We can relax, but we are being realigned, Brandon. We are being reimmersed, um, you know, in the way of Jesus. And just be aware, friends, it's so true that we don't have the ease of living with our disciples that Jesus does. And so there is an additional layer that comes from people who drive to our building or, or who don't live their lives invisible in to one another as easily. And so we're going to have to journey together in the trusting the Lord to let us lead, lead us down this road. Yeah, I think the where we've been going and all this, I think, and just to echo what you were saying with Aquinas, but to add in um, Andrew Murray, you know, quote that I've been living by is him saying that the, the clearer the, the clearer the object of our pursuit, the more willing we will do to, or the we will do whatever it takes to adopt the means necessary to obtain that goal. And yeah. that's, you know, that's, but if it's just means, 
like Aquinas said, then we're not going to get there. But the clearer the goal, <clears throat> we will see it, our worship services may even change to something more beautiful because the goal becomes more clear <clears throat> and to lay down um, the means in pursuit of, of Jesus himself. Uh, no, this has been a, a great, and I'm excited that we get to go another layer deeper, um, you know, next, uh, next week when talking about the personal lane, but just to see how integrated these are, they're both pivotal. They're both crucial in, in, and one is not better than the other. And things go weird if you don't have one right. um, without the other. And so it's because uh, there, there are some out there that are very much all in the personal and uh, that's, we can't do that. Um, things, things go, things go awry in that. Right. Well, um, we're coming to the end of this, John, is there anything else that you'd want to share um, with those listening about what we've been talking about so far? You know, I'm just grateful that people are willing to enter into the conversation and think outside of the box or outside of the highway, so to speak. And I'm excited to see how God might be reshaping us down the road, so to speak, in, in the future of his people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, we're all part of the conversation. So we'd love it uh, if you guys would reach out to us, if there's others that are hearing this and just join this conversation about building cultures and frameworks of discipleship and organizations. It's really what we think is going to change the world and release people into their passion um, and into their purpose. So, um, and just remember, like we've been saying this whole time, John and I are just two disciples. Trying to find our place in God's story. Amen.